When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, we are talking about neoliberalism with Troy Vitese. Troy, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks so much for the invitation on the show. Happy to be here. I'm an environmental historian, and my dissertation was on neoliberal environmental thought. And then uh, recently, I co-authored a book with a climate modeler named Drew Pendergrass called Halford Socialism. And we've been working on many other projects together. My training was in more political history, then I shifted to environmental history. And now I do almost like a mix of economic, intellectual and environmental history. So tell us, what the heck is neoliberalism? So this is a concept that gets thrown around a lot. I think it's perhaps comparable to fascism. I think what's unusual about this problem, about why is it so difficult to define, is that neoliberals are not some super secret conspiratorial organization. I mean, they actually are quite keen to have people write about them. They're quite keen to have attention and to be taken seriously as intellectuals. I've had neoliberals, you know, read my dissertation. You know, they're like super secretive, supposedly like central society, like the Illuminati, you know, group of the neoliberals is the, the Mont Pelerin Society, right? And that is the founding group from like 1947, that met at a hotel in Switzerland and is you know, named after where they met. And this is like the central node of this very broad neoliberal network that includes around 500 think tanks with like 20,000 people working at these think tanks around the world, plus all the university uh, departments they dominate. But this the central node, this Montpellier Society, I mean, they have a website. I mean, like, you know, they, they, have a, they have an archive. You know, ne- I like studying neoliberals because they actually have great archives and it's very easy to to work on them they give you you know you can get scholarships and all that so a lot of left wingers and a lot of marxists mm-hmm. for example they would just say you know it doesn't matter what ideas the ruling class has it's just you know the I know, material basis of the economy. It's the relation of the social forces between classes that matters. And it doesn't, what the classes actually do is they just want to dominate each other. You don't really have to worry about the ideas. I've heard this from many Marxists and I'm a Marxist, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I've heard this from many other Marxists. And so they have no interest or they're very condescending and they think like the only true intellectuals are on the left and right-wing intellectuals are mediocrities and you don't have to read their works. You know, I belong to 
uh, a school of thought of several other scholars. I mean, there was this German academic about 20 years ago, Dieter Pleva, who began to study this seriously. And he's worked with Philip Morawski and, and Quinn Slobodian as well. And they have you know, developed this interpretation that focuses on the Montpellier Society, kind of goes outward and really studies it as an intellectual history versus, I think, other ways of approaching, might, which might just be a David Harvey approach where it's a sort of ruling class agenda, privatization and so forth. So, but I think what's useful about approaching it from like the core of this movement and trying to take its ideas seriously is that once you do that, you can see how certain ideas like radiate outwards and then it becomes possible to discern a certain logic to neoliberal ideas and to be able to trace these things. And therefore you can really say, oh, that is neoliberal and that is not. You know, finally answer your question, mm-hmm. I would say that the neoliberal insight comes from Hayek in the 1930s and 40s. And what he does is that he changes the focus of what had been more classical liberalism, which is really an enlightenment ideology where you have like rational individuals who are engaging with each other and with the government through contracts. That's really what you know, a constitution is, for example, as a contract. And instead of that, it's then shifting the focus to markets. And what markets do is that they are not merely a place where goods are moved around, but they are an institution that produces knowledge. And they produce knowledge better than any other institution, be it science or central planning bureaus and so forth. And therefore, all of society and nature should be regulated through markets because they're able to concentrate dispersed information that is too hard to gather otherwise. And what's distinct about neoliberals is that they're really interested in like the philosophy of knowledge. It's like, how do we know things? And that is an extremely unusual problem for an economist to ask. If the market is a knowledge-producing entity for the neoliberal economist, what is the market for a Marxist economist or a classical economist? I mean, people like to really complain about neoclassical economics, you know, homo economicus and, and all this kind of stuff. That at some level is a very like naive form of economics because they're not interested in questions of knowledge. I mean, with to make equilibrium analysis work, they have to assume that all their data points can be known, right? To make to make these models work. And a neoliberal would say that you can't know that. So for example, if we talk about the environment, a neoclassical economist would say, well, if there is some kind of externality problem, like someone is polluting, you know, someone else's river or whatever it is, then a government planner can come in and price the the cost of that externality and then tax the firm that is causing the pollution. And that will restore equilibrium, you know, within the economy. And a neoliberal would say the bureaucrat can't know the price of that externality. Only the market could price that. There's a whole tradition, of course, of market socialists. And they would say, well, you know, if you want to achieve balance between supply and demand, you don't really need a, a like a free market to do that. You also could have the government acting as an auctioneer and dealing with government firms to try to balance out supply and demand. And therefore, you can use the tools of neoclassical economics for socialism as well as for capitalism, right? And then later in the 70s, 60s and 70s, you have this rise of an environmental movement. And they were also using tools from neoclassical economics, as in we have to deal with the problems of non-renewable resources, we have to deal with externalities to the environment, and therefore we can also use neoclassical tools to do this. And the neoliberals have to fight against like all these different groups, right? And they have to say, no, only the market can do that. If anything, neoliberals are actually probably more most similar to Marxists in how they see 
the market. For a Marxist, the market, well, maybe we should call capital, is this decentralized coercive force on humanity that dictates where investment takes place. And no single mind determines how these decisions are made. Instead, it is the price mechanism and the pursuit of profit that determines this. And this leads to certain irrationalities. So, I mean, like the difference between a Marxist and a neoliberal, where a neoliberal would see this decentralized but still coercive institution as like a real miracle, right? It's like, how did humanity create this institution that is able to guide humanity? I mean, really, it's like a godlike figure. Yeah. And that's what they talk about. But a Marxist would say, this is like this irrational disaster that is, you know, subjugating humanity. How do I use neoliberalism? When I was starting grad school, I wanted to understand why the world is a bad place. <laughs> you know, uh, I think I think neoliberalism is a good way to try to understand why things are so bad. I think you have to understand: Do we live in a society that is structured by certain ideas or certain institutions, and how that came about? Why are we living in a society that knows there's a climate crisis but seems unable to do anything? So the question is, how did we get here? And I think by studying neoliberal texts, you get a better sense of why we live in such a a horrible world, I, I suppose. It's also useful, I think, to read neoliberal texts to understand how can a group of intellectuals actually really affect the world because i think this is something as academics we feel like we have no power we feel like our writings have no power so the question then becomes how did this group of fairly marginal intellectuals a couple of generations ago managed to recreate the world in their image and i would add one more thing which would be i think the neoliberals they ask some and i'm not a neoliberal but i mean they ask some good questions right? They have some good critiques. And I think you have to take them seriously as opponents. And I think, again, there's a tendency on the left to just dismiss them. But Mm -hmm. like the socialist calculation debate, Mm -hmm. which is this on-running discussion between socialists and neoliberals about the feasibility of a planned economy, I mean, that is like a serious problem for socialists. Socialists have to be able to answer this critique given by neoliberals and to be able to, I think, convince themselves and convince others that socialism is possible. That critique is really the problem of knowledge, as I was discussing, as in a, a central, essential, you know, agency cannot uh, collect knowledge in as efficient uh, manner as as the market. So what is the response to that? So that's that'd be one uh, one useful critique to, to think about. And the other useful thing would be to start with, you know, questions about epistemology, right? Like, what can we know? What is knowable, right? And I think most, you know, most social scientists or academics, they don't really think about those questions. I think this actually is a useful starting point. So I think it's like, know your enemy and then learn from your enemies. Let me ask you the next question. I I was hoping you were going to say that we should found our own Mont Pelerin Society. Well, we could talk about that. (laughs) How can we learn from? Sure. But okay, so let me ask you then, how will neoliberalism save the world? Well, I think that it will save the world because it will push the left to really think seriously about what it needs to do to take power again. I'm asking, like, what is the end of the neoliberal era going to look like? And I mean, either it's going to degenerate into this mutant form of 
fascist neoliberalism. Mm. If you know the work of Quinn Slobodian, this is his next book. And a lot of the groups that you know have emerged over the last 14 years since 2008, such as Alternative for Germany or the Brexit campaign and all that, they actually have very close links to neoliberal organizations. And these are neoliberals that descend from a certain kind of neoliberal thought. A lot of them have to do with Murray Rothbart from the mid-20th century. And, and Rothbart you know, was, was part of the Mountain Pelerin Society and a close associate of many of these you know, well-known neoliberals, but he was also a racist. And this idea became like only certain peoples are good market people. So I like to have the, the cultural and institutional basis to be good participants in the market, and some people are not, right? And therefore, this, this weird, racist, violent form of fascist neoliberalism has emerged in the crisis of neoliberalism since 2008. So that's, this is, you know, what's, what's like ahead of us. Like, things can always get worse, which is, which is miserable. Yeah. Unless the left and other social movements get their act together, right? And the book we're saying, mm-hmm. you know, there are lots of groups, you know, we have like animal liberationists, you have conservationists, environmentalists, you know, feminists, and socialists who should really figure out a way of seeing the world that allows them to come together as a coalition. Because right now, you know, they're split in many different ways. They descend from different ideologies and they tend to dislike each other, right? I mean, lots of socialists don't really care about the environment. Lots of environmentalists really are Malthusians and so forth. And there's an incredible amount of antagonism, but none of these groups can actually achieve their goal separate from each other. And they tend just to be co-opted by neoliberals, including, I would say, socialists. I mean, lots of socialists now are really keen on geoengineering, for instance. They think that, oh, we need to dominate nature. And geoengineering is like the latest way humanity dominates nature. So they're just, you know, useful idiots, unfortunately. But if we study neoliberalism, we learn from neoliberalism, then I think it is possible to defeat them because at some level, their ideology is foolish, right? I mean, this idea that the market produces, you know, such useful information, like better information than science, for instance, or better outcomes than democracy is just preposterous. And what we really focus on in the book is the environmental problem, because what neoliberals do is that unlike other economists who tend to get their metaphors from physics, neoliberals get their metaphors from biology. And so like a neoclassical economist in the 19th century would say, well, the economy is like this Newtonian problem of physics of, you know, billiard balls, and we can calculate everything, basically. And a neoliberal would say it's really more like biology, where at some level, you know, nature is so complex, like a biologist can't know everything about an animal or an ecosystem, they can only mm-hmm. know general patterns. And that's about it. But <laughs> the problem with this metaphor for the neoliberals is that they have to then choose between is nature you know more complex than the market and if they're using nature as a metaphor for the market how can the market be more complex than this thing that it's modeled after right so you know what we say in the book mm-hmm. we're trying to out hayek hayek so we, we're saying that our challenge to neoliberals is that yes managing a global economy will be very difficult. We have no illusions about that. But it is easier to do that than to try to manage the biosphere through the market. That will definitely end in failure. Where a neoliberal would say the market is unknowable, we say that nature is ultimately unknowable, right? So then the question becomes, how can we create a society that recognizes the limits on our knowledge and can constrain the economy within uh, hopefully safe boundaries to allow for a stable biosphere because we rely on the biosphere 
to support us, but we cannot fully understand it. So we have to let this system function and give it enough space so it can function. Therefore, socialism has to be a somewhat limited appropriation of nature. And therefore, it also has to be based on a form of planning that can incorporate many kinds of considerations, be they ethical and ecological and social and so forth. And that's why we rely on one socialist theorist who actually was the first opponent of the neoliberals during the socialist calculation debate. That's Otto Neurath. And he's saying that the socialist economy is in some ways like a war economy where you don't care about you know, money, for instance. You don't care about any kind of like labor chits or mm-hmm. energy or any other kind of single metric. You care about many different things that are not commensurate with each other. So he uses the example of a battleship, right? If you're a commander of a battleship, you don't, you know, you care about the thickness of your armor and the speed of your ship and how far you can shoot and so forth. But these things are not, mm-hmm. cannot be totally reduced to each other, right? If you had a ship with very thick walls, but no gun, it'd be a pretty useless battleship. And similarly, we have to manage many problems at once, right? There's not just one environmental crisis, not just climate change. We also are facing problems with, you know, allergy blooms and invasive species and zoonotic disease and the... Uh, biodiversity crisis. At the same time, we want to make sure everyone has a good life. And at the same time, we have to also you know, produce a totally different agricultural and energy system. And these things, again, are not reducible to each other. So that's the challenge, I think, that neoliberalism opposes to us and the environmental crisis poses to us. But we can learn from neoliberals in terms of how does one organize? Again, how do intellectuals get their ideas out there? And so this idea that you want to have a group of intellectuals who can then come up with a fairly robust philosophy and then work with people, let's say, in think tanks to translate abstract ideas into policy proposals and then get that out into the world through you know, what Morosi calls like this Russian doll network, right? Like having the Montpellier Society, think tanks, universities, you know, journalists, and then grassroots organizations that allows you to learn what needs to be done, but also to translate ideas and also to have an echo chamber so it actually fills up the public sphere. Because the real strategy of the the neoliberals is to not have just one solution to a problem, but like 10 of them, and then they fill up the public sphere and people are just debating between different neoliberal policies. And I'll say one last thing, and that is really what neoliberals also show us is that it's important to organize so you can take advantage of crises. And I think you know, environmentalists and the left have been completely useless in this regard since the 80s especially, mm. where there have been big crises, but because they haven't done that kind of foundational philosophical work, they're never able to take advantage of the crisis. So even though 2008 was a huge shock to neoliberals, obviously COVID was a huge shock, we've seen no real gains for the left. Versus in the 70s, the Keynesian you know, hegemonic model began to crumble and then the neoliberals could step in and say, well, here are 10 things you should do instead of Keynesianism. That gave them an opening to really change how people think about things. So I think the left and environmentalists need to do similar work. Yeah. And maybe learn some things from the neoliberals in order to meet them head on. Yes, exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on High Theory. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was wonderful. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio.
You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.